guys. Welcome to Pocket Theology this week. This is Martin Hinton with my good friend Jason. Greet the people, Jason. Sup? That's all you guys get. Sorry. He's not very talkative today, but we are so excited to continue talking with you guys this week about Job. But like we said last week, Jason and I are both small church pastors. I work at North Grand Christian Church in Ames, Iowa, and Jason works at uh, Berean Connect Church in Murfreesboro, Illinois. Uh, so we just... Berean Christian Church, we, but whatever. close enough. Uh, we just love being able to learn this stuff and being able to share it with you guys. We are not claiming to be experts. Uh, we are just claiming to be able to read the experts and kind of break it down and share it with you guys. So, Jason, you have anything you want to add before we start? No, that's it. I'm looking forward to this. We'll be talking about the middle chunks of Job, right? Because we kind of talked about the beginning and end last time. And now we're going to kind of talk about some of the junk that goes on in the middle for the most part. Okay. So first question we wanted to talk about is what's up with Job's friend and wife or friends and wife? He has multiple friends. He's cooler than me, I guess. Uh, my only friend is Jason. So, uh, Well, Jason... What's up with them? The easy cop-out answer is like a bunch of bad stuff happens to him and his friends and his wife show up, which like, yeah, I would hope so. That like if a bunch of bad stuff was happening to me, then my friends and my wife would hopefully comfort me. But uh, they don't really comfort him. They kind of come after him. And so that's why they're included in the story. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens, for example, like in Jesus's life. Tons of stuff that happens that is not mentioned in different accounts and different gospels. They'll include different details because ancient writers didn't aim to tell you the entire story. They aimed to tell you the parts that mattered to make the point that they're trying to make. So the question we should ask when we're going, oh, you know, well, you know, why are his friends such jerks? Why is his wife such a jerk? Is why did the author of the book, whoever wrote it down, whether it was Moses or someone else, Whoever wrote this down, why did they include these characters? And why did they include the quotes they, inc they included? And I think my, my take, and we can dig into this a little bit more, but my take is that they exist to give different worldviews or different answers to the question, why do bad things happen? So that's my take. And we'll dig into that more in a minute. But what do you think, Martin? What's, what's the point? What's going on with them? I think for the most part, they act as some sort of um, adversary antagonist kind of thing. And so I, when I read Job, I read Job as a narrative mainly with a lot of poetry at each point. And so when you look at the narrative, or when you look at narrative as a whole, a good story doesn't just happen. You don't have the protagonist and nothing happens to him, and all of a sudden he's this great guy. Uh, even on the hero's journey where there's not really a antagonist, there's this issue they have to overcome or this adventure they have to go on. But Job's friends and wife seem to be some kind of antagonist, um, not really in that they're the bad guy that Job has to beat, but that uh, for the friends at least, they are the the people conflicting with him that he has to overcome. Uh, and he's not going to physically overcome them. He's not fighting them, but he's trying to form some sort of argument or some sort of um, 
he's trying to have some kind of discussion about what's going on and how... yeah, he's trying to defend himself exactly and so the friends uh, for those of you that haven't read job i think we did a quick rundown last time but i don't remember and so i just like to summarize it like this um job teaches us that bad things can happen to good people and the way that we find this out is at the beginning of the book they approach job as this righteous man no one is more righteous than him uh and god and hasatan the adversary have this discussion where the adversary says well job just follows you because you've been so good to him you've given him everything and so god says fat bet and then God, like, takes everything away, so he loses all of his cattle, all of his sheep, he loses his house, his kids, all of these go away or die. And then Job says, I will still, I'll still love the Lord. And then Hasatan comes to uh, God again and says, hey, well, he just, he only, you know, only follows you because you keep him healthy. And so God says, fat bet, try again. Make him sick, but don't kill him. And so the adversary says, okay, I'll make him sick. And he grows like these gross boils. Uh, I always imagine them. There was a kid that I used to go to daycare with when I was really little who was super pale. And he would get sunburnt so bad that he would boil on his shoulders. And it was the oh. grossest thing ever. And I imagine those just all over his body. And so it's this terrible sickness. And his wife comes up to him and says, you clearly did something wrong. Uh, because you are being punished. And so she says, curse God and die. And Job says, no. Finally, at the end of the book, God shows up and says to Job, who speaks without knowledge? Who, uh, you know, who is trying to explain what they don't know? And then goes through and tells Job that he needs to get over himself and that sometimes it's not about what you do. And that's kind of where we get that message of, uh, Good things ha can happen to bad people. Bad things can still happen to good people. Just because the general rule is good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people doesn't mean it works like that all the time. The friends seem to be this character of, well, this is the way the world works. They're this strict, um, they're this strict idea, basically. They're not even really people. Yeah. Uh, but they believe in what's called the retribution principle which is good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Uh, Strict retributive and, justice, yeah. Yes. They appear to be an antagonist character. Uh, the wife, on the other hand, is some kind of plot device, um, not necessarily, you know, being like the friends where her, her conversation with Job is meant to further, you know, not meant to further the issue, but it seems like the wife was meant to leave, and that was part of him losing everything, honestly. The wife also shows up in an interesting place, because in Job 2, after she comes after him, are you still maintaining your integrity, curse God, and die? Job replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God, but not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. But then later on in chapter 12, He's been going through it for a while now, and he actually gives in. And like in chapter 12, verse 13, he takes off the shackles put on by kings, and he ties a loincloth around their waist. 
He leads priests away stripped. And so that he's naming people that generally are seen in a society that believes in like strict retributive justice, that if you do good things, you get good things. So priests and kings must be good people because they have a lot of power and influence and money and stuff. That's the idea. And Job is here saying like, God takes these righteous, mighty people and just ruins their life. And so he kind of is like coming after God. And several times he says, you know, if I could state my case to you, we would see that God is wrong and that I am right. And so he's implying that God is an unjust judge. And so eventually he does give in and he never like curses God and dies, but he does talk a lot of smack, uh, but he kind of waffles on it. Well, he'll do that. And then the next chapter, he'll be like, but God is mighty and I shall worship him and whatever, you know, kind of taking his misfortune well. So the wife, it's interesting. She doesn't show up again after chapter two. She says this line, curse God and die. And Job's like, no. And then the author says, and he did not sin. And I think the implication is, and later on he did. <laughs> so there is one friend that I do want to focus in on a little bit. Because he just shows up out of nowhere in chapter 32. Uh, and he has this huge monologue painted as like he's a young guy. And he's been sitting there for a while just listening. But he hasn't spoken because he feels like it's disrespectful. And it's not the young guy's place to like talk down to his elders. And then he gets ticked at everyone. And is like, fine, I have something to say. And then has the longest monologue in the book from chapter 32 to 37 without stopping. Like this guy doesn't breathe. And uh, his name is Elihu. And while the other friends and the wife believe like you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. So they're like, Job, you must ascend in some horrible way and God is punishing you. Elihu does have like a little bit of a different take on things. And he actually says that he's angry at Job for accusing God of wrongdoing. And he says that he's angry at the friends for not proving Job wrong. And so his solution... If you'll get like Job 36, give me a sec, pull that up real quick. Job 36, verse 16 and onward. Elihu says, he's wooing you, that, speaking of God, he's wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. But now you are laden with judgment due to the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. And then he gives some advice, like basically be careful not to sin. And the implication here seems to be that like a lie who thinks this punishment isn't necessarily because Job has done something wrong already, but because Job might do something wrong in the future. And so God is using punishment as a way of chastening him, of preparing him. And this is really similar to the Leibniz thing that we talked about last week. The, uh, the idea that God would allow bad things to happen to create the best reality but elihu's version is he might let bad things happen to you that you don't deserve because if he didn't you would sin in the future and so he's like preparing you and building your character um elihu is still not like shown to be correct but it is interesting he's the last person to speak before god shows up so he seems to be at least closer to the truth than anyone else in the book but still like is not presented as being correct. Martin, do you have anything else to say about those friends and other minor characters? Not really. Um, I don't, the only thing that bugs me, I always hate when people put a lie in with like all of Job's friends, because in reality, they're having three, a three-sided discussion. Uh, and the dictionary of old Testament wisdom 
literature and poetry or whatever it is, uh, has an image of a triangle and it has each corner with a group. And so Job is in one corner. Uh, Job's other three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are in one corner, and then Elihu's in another corner. And they all represent different ideas. And so yeah. it's, I think it's really interesting to see that. Real quick, let's, let's just clarify something you said there that's really, really good. That triangular three-sided discussion, each one of these groups is representing a specific idea. We already mentioned Job's friends and his wife represent this idea of strict retributive justice. Elihu represents the idea, like I was talking about a second ago, that, yeah, bad things always happen because you were going to do bad or because you did bad in the past. So he's a little bit more nuanced. So like bad things might happen to good people so that they don't turn into bad people. But Job's stance for the majority of the book is that God is unjust. And so those are the three ideas. If good things happen to good people, if that's the way the world's supposed to work. Either good things do happen to good people, which is just blatantly wrong. The book shows that that is wrong because Job was just. Or bad things happen to chasten you. And Elihu is not confirmed. So I think that's meant to be like struck down as well as like that's not a possibility. Or God is unjust. God is just this evil jerk that's mistreating people. And when God comes to his own defense at the end, that is obviously not the conclusion you're supposed to come to either. So there's three ideas and they're all wrong so anyways so the next question that we have is uh what is up with satan being in the midst of the divine council like and i like this one. If we if we talk about how because uh, a lot of times in the new testament we'll talk about how god is just uh but god is also holy and so he can't be in the presence of sin so how is the uh, embodiment of sin basically supposed to just show up in front of him like how did that happen right uh, do you want to go ahead and start jason yeah i think if we're going to start this question the first thing we have to say is like what is the divine council and there's a lot of junk you can dig into here but basically like if you're talking about ancient societies in general a divine council is just a group of gods with a chief god that rules them and when the term is used in judeo-christian stuff so if you're talking about jewish theology or christian theology the divine council refers to this thing that shows up like in job 1 and 2 in psalm 82 in nehemiah 9 uh, in micaiah's vision in first kings 22 and a lot of other places where there's this group that is sometimes referred or talked about as a council and other times it's called a, a host which is a word for army um the host of heaven that seems to advise God or at least stand beside him in the courtroom or in the throne room, rather. It, it's a very similar set. Angels are almost talked about as like lesser deities in, especially in Jewish text. And actually the word Elohim, which means gods, is sometimes used to refer to non-deity spiritual beings in Jewish writing. So the idea is, okay, all those pagan religions have these divine councils. They have these lesser gods with the chief god. And with Jews and with Christians, it's not that there's lesser gods, but there's these spiritual beings, these, these Elohim or sons of God, as they're called in Job 1, that are created beings and are not gods, but they, are, they exist in a different plane, I guess you could say, than humans do. And they, they exist face to face with God and they have some sort of role in worshiping and not necessarily advising him, but functioning as like a royal court. 
So then you have Hasatan show up, the accuser, the adversary, show up in the midst of this court, this kingly court. So, Martin, do you want to take that from there? What's going on with in this setting? So, first of all, thank you, Jason, for saying the adversary, because um, Hasatan translates to the adversary. Uh, it's the most... I don't want to say the most common name for Satan in the Old Testament, but it's a very common one. Um, Which is also where we get the, the word Satan from. The transliteration of it into English is Satan. Um, but oftentimes we don't really... We kind of just transliterate it and say, oh, it's Satan. Uh, but there are... I mean, if I were talking about an opponent or an adversary, I would also use that word. And so it's... It's not always best translated as Satan. Uh, sometimes it should be translated as the person that you're against. But I had a couple of things that I wanted to read, actually, because uh, the Dictionary of Old Testament Wisdom, Poetry, and Writings has an article in here on the role of the adversary. And so I highlighted a couple sections that I want to talk about, or that I wanted to read for you guys. The first one, it says, Satan here is a function, not a personal name. Uh, it's particularly important here because this... Satan is portrayed neither as an independently volitional being nor as diabolical. He is among the sons of gods, or the sons of God, uh, the numbers of the heavenly council, and he operates only as a subordinate. By permitting this adversary's course of action, God is allowing Job to Job's case to stand as a test case for his policies. For one can hardly label this adversary as an embodiment of evil when he simply expresses doubt concerning God's policies, a doubt that God has prompted through his observation concerning Job. And so this, you know, this first uh, section says, we really shouldn't translate this as Satan. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to be the Satan idea that we have. Uh, it appears like uh, one of the sons of God, or we might say an angel or something in that realm with God says, he says, well, Job only follows you because you give him good things. And then this whole thing starts. And so it doesn't appear that it's Satan. It appears that it's some being in the heavens with God who either has the role of challenging God, maybe just in this book, or maybe God actually has somebody to say like, hey, maybe you should consider this. Maybe it is an advisor, who knows, but it does not appear to be the person that we stereotypically understand to be red with horns and a pitchfork. Like, that doesn't seem to be the correct understanding here. The role of the adversary is to provide the most important twist in the challenge against God's policies. Any human can contend that it is not a good policy for God to allow righteous people to suffer. This, of course, is Job's challenge. That's what he's saying. He's challenging that uh, it's not right to let righteous people suffer. What is an innovation to this discussion is the contention of the adversary that is not or that it is not a good policy for God to bring prosperity to righteous people. When the adversary asks the rhetorical question of whether God serves Job or whether Job serves God for nothing, he in effect questions whether there is such a thing as disinterested righteousness. If righteousness is routinely rewarded, will not people behave righteously just to get the reward? And if that is so, is there really such a thing as true righteousness? We talked about it on the last episode a little bit. We hit on it at least. If good things happen to good people, then everyone would be good because they just want the good things. It doesn't come out of yeah. 
what we in the New Testament understand as the motives for our our actions to love God, okay. right? So that's really similar to Augustine's thing, right? That we talked about in that. And I think that's about where it mm -hmm. came up was Augustine says, well, sometimes bad things have to happen to good people so that they don't just pursue God to get good things. So they don't treat God like a genie because that's not worship. That's not submission. If you're just like trying to like rub the bottle and get the genie to give you things, right? So that's kind of, that's kind of my take on it. Um, mm. I really don't think that it's Satan. I think it's Hasatan, some being who is allowed yeah. in God's presence, who's job or at least their literary function because of course this may not be a literal story or a historical story uh, is to challenge god on this idea yeah. either way the role of the individual is the same whereas job's friends for example think if you do good things you get good things the adversary is telling god no 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 it's not just do good things, get good things. It's they're doing good things because they want good things. They don't really love you. They don't really like you. They're, they're gold diggers. That's what the adversary is saying. And that's exactly like, that makes perfect sense. If your role is to be the adversary, whether this is the devil, like the one that we think about with pitchfork and whatever, you know, or whether this is just an angel, some sort of spiritual being that is part of God's court, and God has given him the task. It's either the devil or the devil's advocate, I guess. It doesn't matter because either way, they're saying the same thing. So the only way this really matters is if you believe that this is a historical story. It's not a parable. It's an actual story. This all really happened. And that Hasatan is the devil. Then you have to ask the question, well, why is God allowing the devil into his courtroom? But even at that, I don't think that's necessarily an issue. Because the why well, question isn't things. answered. So he is and leave it there, I guess. The other question that has to be asked, if you believe this is a literal historical event or story, is why did God even humor Satan if you think it's him? Like, why did he yeah. even listen to that? If it was me and I saw a red dude with pitchfork walking towards me, I mean, I'd brush off anything he says and that's another issue with the historicity his, historicity of this book god doesn't need to prove anything to himself if god is omniscient then he knows whether or not job's faith is legitimate whether or not he's a righteous person or he's just a celestial gold digger like god knows so he doesn't need to test job to prove anything so unless he's just doing it like basically as a as a middle finger to, to the devil then it's hard to justify the behavior, I suppose. Not that God needs us to justify his behavior. It's the whole point of the book, like God is king. But it seems more like the book is set up as a thought experiment to drive home points about who God is and our place in the universe, which is kind of what we said last week. So I'm thinking, Martin, that's probably a good place to wrap up. We did have one other question about Job's kids, but the gist of it, I think very simply is, Job's kids dying, as harsh as that sounds, the purposes of the book, at least, is this is just part of him losing everything. And that's like really jaded to like a modern Western mind, but to an ancient Near Eastern mind, that would have made a lot of sense. Your kids, that was your legacy. So the kids die, the house is destroyed, you lose all your money, your wife hates you and disappears. It's just part of Job losing everything. Um, is there anything else I that you want to throw in, Martin? I just want to point out the fact that uh, God 
decided that taking away the kids was the you know the easiest move kill him right but he didn't kill the wife he let her yell at him i think yeah. he thought that that was worse well i mean proverbs say what is it um man i'm gonna misquote scripture if i try but there's a, a proverb about a nagging wife like how dreadful it is to have a nagging wife and so i can't imagine like you're you've lost everything and you're depressed and then the one person that survived is like i don't like you anymore and let me tell you what i think you should do curse god and die like it's another basically another part of the misery it's it's the cherry on top of the misery sunday so but that's pretty much it so we just want to take a second and thank you guys for listening to us follow us on spotify rate us uh leave a comment or a summary or something and uh, if you guys have any questions or things that you would like to hear us talk about, you can email us at realpockettheology at gmail, right? Yeah, realpockettheology at gmail.com. We...